Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. So then let's move into the scripture for today. If you look at, take your Bibles and go to Acts 3, and you'll find there a story with uh, Peter and John. And usually it's Peter, John, John, and James, right? Like usually it's the three, but like, I don't know where James was at this time. There's another story that is quite familiar to us with Peter and John. And that's this one right here where they're racing to see the empty tomb. So like when, if you, if you Google Peter and John, you'll get this and you'll get the story that we're about to go into. Um, and so Peter and John definitely are, um, significant apostles Peter wrote Bible. John wrote Bible. John wrote more Bible than Peter. I don't know if they had a competition, but the disciples were always competing in some ways to be who's number one. So that's something that was a a part of their lives. But then also Peter and John are two totally different disciples, right? You have Peter. um, He's impulsive, bold, energetic, daring. While John is more timid, loving, he writes all about love in his, uh, in his letters at the end of the Bible. Trustful, meditative. Peter is a martyr. John lives a, f- a full life. Um, in the Gospel of John, at the end of it, uh, Peter is talking to Jesus and saying, saying to Jesus, what about, what about this one to whom you love? And uh, it says, Jesus says, well, if I want him to live until eternity comes, uh, that so be it. Um, so there's, there is a lot of connections between Peter and John. In fact, because of this scene, many say that Peter went to John to be comforted after his denial of Jesus and before they re- witnessed the resurrection. So Peter and John, uh, apostles, disciples, uh, followers of Jesus Christ. So Acts 3 verse 1, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So that's three o'clock in the afternoon, the ninth hour. I guess they only start thinking, you start counting once you wake up in the morning at six o'clock in the morning. So if you wake up in the morning at six o'clock, you get to nine o'clock, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. So they, most, most people would be going to, uh, or people who are devout, follower, followers of uh, Jew, Jews that were devout would be going to the, to the temple three times a day once in the morning, once in the afternoon, and once in the evening. Followers that were really devout would go seven times. So to pray. So, I'm, so, then, uh, but so this is uh, Peter and John going to the temple. They're on their way to the temple to pray. And uh, yeah, they come up to something like this, right? This is what I always picture when, uh, when, when I read this story think of the story some big huge temple with them being on the steps like something uh where like they come up to the and maybe find him right around there or something like that as they're walking up these steps but this is not a temple just so you know it's the it's like the washington memorial no no it's a lincoln memorial lincoln memorial in the washington dc i just thought i'd put this in here to see if joe's watching but yeah this is uh this is something, it's not that different, though, going up the steps 
to the temple is where Peter and John find someone. It's actually, this is the, uh, in the Israel Museum, this is a model that we saw last year and took a picture of it. And this is the temple with the city of Jerusalem around it. So if you would, um, many people say that it's this gate that they were at, but it's, it's, it's a, there's, there's, a, there's been books written about this, about like where was this that they, that they went up into the temple. And, and a lot of people, which I think makes more sense, it was coming up these steps. Because it's like, this looks more like the Lincoln Memorial too, right? So it looks, looks more like what I imagine it to be. But, uh, but the, this steps is where maybe a lot more people would gather through. And there would have been like arches, like that, two, ar- two big arches. And they would have been on that side and, and people, they would, have, they would have been, like those arches also had very decorative um, ceilings. So the clue in the Bible is it says the beautiful entrance. And so that's why people thought it was more likely to be this one because was, this one was very ornate and it was right here where the, uh, um, you, you'd go into the main temple, the temple, because it, right before it was a, was a courtyard for, for women, and around it was a courtyard for, for um, Gentiles. Um, and, but because this man was sick, he most likely wouldn't have even been able, able to get into this courtyard. So that's why people think that he was here. Doesn't really matter too much, but it just puts a little bit of context into the story. And so we find Peter and James no, Peter and John, sorry. Peter and John going into the temple, about to get into the temple. And so they, uh, they come up to a man, a man lame from birth, who is being carried, and whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms for those entering the temple. So this man had some good friends that carried him there, put him there, um, daily. Now, I'm not sure if they maybe got a cut from some of the amounts that were given to uh, out, because I know when you cross across, go from Mexico to the U.S., there's often some people that are begging for money, and a lot of people that are losing limbs and, 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 and that type of stuff, but they have to give a cut to somebody else, too, um, because they're the story that most people would connect with the most to give money. So I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if this was his, this was a business or if this was just friends that were really good to him, carrying him there. But he was expecting what? He was expecting money that day, right? He was expecting to gather money. And then Peter and, uh, Peter and John walking up there, they go right to him. Another thing that people have pointed out, I've, I've heard sermons about it before saying like, if this guy was on the steps of the temple, wouldn't it have Jesus noticed him? Like, why wasn't he healed at that moment? There's no real answer for that. It's just speculation. We have no idea if he was there when Jesus saw him. Maybe he was, maybe, he was, maybe they never did. But some people say, well, that's because this was a moment that, uh, some, that God was going to use this man to uh, fulfill in some ways his dreams that he never even had that day. So seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him. 
as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So that's the verses three and four and five, three to five. So they, so he definitely, he called, he called, Peter and John were, were going to the temple and this guy uh, asked, asked him something. He said, like, do you have any spare change? Whatever he said. And Peter looked at him and said, and then looked at us, said, look at us. I'm not sure why he was exactly saying that. Maybe he said, maybe he just thought, do we look like we're wealthy people? I don't know. And the next uh, thing Peter says, I have no silver or gold. I have no silver or gold. So I'm guessing at that moment, I'm not sure if, if Peter paused for dramatic, for, for, uh, to make it more of a dramatic event, for dramatic flair. But at that moment, I'm sure he was the guy that was re- wanting money, was like, oh, another person not giving me money. And, uh, but then Peter said, and also, I have no silver and gold. Last chapter, they, gave, they sold everything. So they, he, Peter does have access to some gold and silver, uh, definitely as an apostle of Jesus. They, a lot of people sold everything and gave them the money to give to the, unless he gave it all away already. Maybe he gave all of it away already. But it was just like a few verses ago when Peter was collecting money from believers to give to the poor. So, uh, but he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So it was, a, it was a miracle. And like the first miracle that's like described in the New Testament by an apostle as opposed to Jesus. There is miracles about There's reports of miracles happening when he sent the, when Jesus sent the apostles out and his disciples out two by two. But this is one that, the first one that's actually described. Powerful event. And leaping up, and Isaiah says that the the cripple will jump like deer. So this is like, this is like, this is happening in real life. He stood up and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And it was like, wow, what a, what a, what a glorious time to, to, to see that happen, right? Like that's, but if you sit, sit, about that, sit with that for a bit, just think about that for a bit. A miracle done by a believer in Jesus. A disciple, no less, but a believer in Jesus. What does that make you think? In some ways, like when was the last time you reached out and lifted somebody up who was cri- crippled, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's, that's challenging. I know, like, for, wouldn't that be easier if we could do that? In some ways? It's a, that's something that, as this, 
for the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this sermon, I'm like, wow, these miracles, they don't seem to happen the same way, but they do happen. So like, it seems like it's almost too simple to th- for this, something like this. Believe in miracles, God will make a way. That seems like it's just like too simple. And, uh, but like if you look at the miracles in the Bible, there's definitely times when there was lots of miracles and there was times where when's it as much miracles. Times with Moses, there are so many miracles that Moses, um, like there's 10 plagues. Then there's like walking through the Red Sea. And then there's like manna from heaven. And there's turning snakes into uh, to, uh, staffs. Like just a simple, simple trick that like, that like was like pretty, pretty, like nobody's tried that. And there was, uh, there was all this type of stuff hitting a, a rock. And even when he did it in disobedience, the water still came out. Elijah, definitely a time of miracles during his, uh, in, if you look into uh, Second Kings, you'll find Elijah and Elisha. There's a more miracles around that time. And the time of Jesus and the apostles. Like those, but like, you know, it's, think of a miracle that David did. Was he not the man after God's own heart? Like some would say the Goliath was a miracle, but it, like you could also explain it. It wasn't it as, as supernatural. Or like, how about even Joseph? Right? Like, was his, like, were there miracles happening then? It just depends on how you define a miracle, right? The miracles of the Old Testament age, they definitely authenticated Moses' and the prophets as men of God. And the miracles of the New Testament age definitely authentic, authentic, uh, authentic, Boy, why did I, I said it just right a minute ago. But they, they made us realize that Christ was Jesus and his apostles were ushering in the new kingdom. They're significant because they serve a larger purpose in God's redemptive plan. Testifying to the authenticity of God's messengers who bring his revelation to humanity. And they do... I, I do think that miracles play a role in our lives and in the history in the Bible. It's just that miracles still happen, but maybe Christians, we, us as Christians, should avoid the two extremes of seeing everything as a miracle and saying that there is nothing that is a miracle. So like some people believe that their miracles don't happen anymore. As a Christian, they will say that the gifts of the Spirit were stopped after the apostles. You had to be living at that time to experience that. That's what some, that's a, there's a belief system out there that, is, that's, that many, many Bible-believing churches go with. And then there is, the other, the other opposite would be like, anything can happen. Let's heal everybody right today. And somewhere in the middle, usually middle is a good place to be. And like that's, that's maybe where we should uh, sit a little bit. Because it, it does still challenge me that Peter reached out and grabbed that man and in faith knew that he was going to leap up. He took a huge risk. And maybe there's some risks we need to take in life. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So John 14, verse 12. You know when Jesus said that? Right after Palm Sunday. If you want to read what Jesus said to the apostles this week, go to John and read those. I think it starts in like right around like John 13, 14, 15. There's a whole there's sermons of Jesus all the way to his uh, all the way to his death and resurrection. I think there's four or five five chapters. One's the one talks about I am in the vine. That's John 15. This is John 14. John 17, I believe, is where he, Jesus prays for disciples and and for us as a church. I think there's five chapters there in John that Jesus, John captured those sermons for us. And that was like this week that he, that he said those. Like that, as we're celebrating Easter, as we're getting into Good Friday, that would have been like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that, that Jesus was teaching the apostles. So, um, yeah, it's, it would be good to read, read those verses, those chapters. But this verse, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the work, works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Sometimes we see that term greater, and we, we, we think of it differently than what it was supposed to, especially in the last 100, 150 years. Jesus meant that his followers' works would be greater in number, scope, and impact than his own. Not necessarily that one individual work would be greater than what he did. Like, that's not possible. But just look around in the world, in Canada, in, in North America, in the, in the whole world. What kind of an impact has Christians have on, in this world? And that was because of followers of, of Christ taking some risks and doing some things and action and loving others, and caring for others. Hospitals are started, education institutions are started, uh, so many great things. If you look at North America, almost like all of the older universities were started by Christians. A lot of the hospitals started by Christians. A lot of the, in Saskatchewan, a lot of the nursing homes started by Christians. Christians desiring to live out their dreams and live a life God asked them to live. So, yeah, it's plainly obvious for most of us to understand that doing more spectacular works than Jesus would be really hard, since that would mean raising people from the dead, like many times. After four days, raising somebody from the dead. Not saying it can't be done, but like, there's some, imp- there's much, there's, gr- there's the huge impact that, that Christ had on this world can be seen in his church. And that's right there that shows that maybe we need to take our faith and, and take it seriously and, and move, go from there. I want to tell you a story about uh, uh, this, this couple here, William and Catherine Booth. Um, I was, I've been uh, I've taken an narrow leadership course and one thing I got to do was meet a bunch of people in the Salvation Army. There was like, I think maybe 15 officers that I've met in the last three years, all a part of the Salvation Army. And William and Catherine Booth, 
started this. They were born in 1829. Uh, William died in 1912. His wife passed away a little bit earlier in the late 1800s. William was an evangelist. That's what he, he just wanted people to come to know Jesus. He was everywhere in England spreading the good news of, of Jesus, starting in London and moving across Great Britain. He's actually, in 2002, he's listed as one, one of the greatest Britons in, in a BBC poll. And Catherine was like right there with him. In fact, he would be like out there ministering to people and she would be raising money so that they could do more, do more stuff. And she was, so she was, and that's what she was known for. And, but she was also known for being the, the mother of the Salvation Army. They, one, one thing that happened with, with uh, one story about William was he, he was like wanting to minister to people that the church didn't connect with, the poor, the addicted, the helpless. And he was going and doing this and he was bringing them into churches and they were like, these churches don't want to deal with this. So it's like, well, let's start our own church. And that's where the Salvation Army started, was they started their own church because churches couldn't handle having people who are poor, addicted, and from the, the, the outskirts of society in, and, in amongst them. The Salvation Army now has an organization that has, that's in 132 different countries. And they're, they're known for running charity shops, operating shelters for the homeless, for disaster relief, humanitarian aid, many other things. One of the people that I, I got to know, they ran the social services for three states. And basically, these states just gave them the money to run their social services. Uh, they did not have a as much of a government connection um, with social services. It was just that they just, let's just hire Salvation Army to do it. Salvation Army still has tons of churches. There's a church in Saskatoon. There's a, there's, they definitely are doing some amazing things out there. Um, another thing that's interesting is if you would have, um, I don't know how many of you bought a Big Mac or a cheeseburger or anything from McDonald's in the 1990s. Anybody? Yeah, so like maybe they weren't good for us. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but so who's the guy that, uh, the guy that founded Ray Kroc? His, his third wife, Joan Kroc, outlived him and had the fortune. She gave $1.4 billion to Salvation Army because of her faith. So she basically gave everything that McDonald's had, old, had returned to, to her and her husband, pretty much all to Salvation Army. So if you, if you bought a Big Mac in the 1990s, some of that went to the Salvation Army to do, to do evangelism and do good works. So like, yeah, these, these, this William was a dreamer and Catherine was a dreamer right alongside with him. And they, out of their faith in Jesus Christ, like in many ways, many miracles happened, right? And if we go closer to home, we have Bishop Taze, right? Uh, he's a, he started Rosson Junior College, um, but in the 1920s, if you read his, his biography, he was fairly alone with bringing Russians, Russian Mennonites to Canada. Like there wasn't very much support for it. And he signed the debt with the CP rail by himself with his own name and it ended up being millions of dollars back then, let alone what it meant 
for now, but he just, he, he went and visited Russia. He saw people in need and he wanted to bring them to Canada. And there's like, if you look at this room, I'm sure there's many of you that would put your hands up if you said, so did your grandparents or great grandparents come in the 1920s to Russia, from Russia to Canada? Uh, a lot of us wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Bishop Tays, right? And he had a dream. His dream was to save 20,000 people. Actually, he wanted to save way more. The Saskatchewan government stopped him at 20,000, 22,000. Then some went to, uh, where's, where's Gustavo? Where's? Yeah, Gustavo is upstairs. I couldn't see him because he's upstairs. Some went to Brazil then. <laughs> so Gustavo's wife, Susan, is, uh, went to Brazil. And they, they think of, in, I, took, uh, I took Gustavo to see uh, his grave, Bishop Tay's grave. And he's like, what? Who's this? We have streets named in Curitiba. Was it Curitiba that they had streets named? In, uh, in, uh, off, after him because of, of what he did. So it's beyond Canada even. Um, but yeah, he was a, a man on a mission, and he definitely had some dreams, started some institutions, um, was a part of this church, starting this church right here in, in Hague. Um, and yeah, 22,000 people immigrated to Canada. On his deathbed, he was told that there's a German word for the debt. I can't remember that. Some people probably know what that is. Um, he was told that it was paid off. And it didn't take him long to pass away after that uh, because he had so much ownership on that whole exercise. And uh, yeah, so I'm sure, like, these people aren't, like if you look at William and Catherine and Bishop Tays, they're not perfect. They did make some mistakes, um, but they definitely had some dreams. And, uh, and that, that, th- th- those dreams turned into miracles. And there is uh, lots of different things that have happened because of that. Lots of people, lots of people saved and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Uh, this is, uh, I'll just say, just a, when a, for some reason I dream a little bit too, if you ask Candace. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> she will tell you that I'm a bit of a dreamer. So, and she's the realist, so. But uh one thing that, that I ended up doing last year was uh, I flew over to see a camp that we were thinking about. Oh, maybe we should just like, you know, purchase a camp that was up north in northern Saskatchewan. And so it's like, because it's a fishing camp, but she's like, Mark, you can't drive there. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, so <laughs> we get to fly there. <laughs> Isn't that better? <laughs> so I was, uh, yeah, this is flying over. Uh, this is coming out of Mississippi and flying to um, over the Churchill River system. And just a beautiful place in northern Saskatchewan, right? The Churchill River system. And just something as we didn't have as many camps last summer. So I, I did go fishing up with Brandon at Besner Lake, which is south of this, not too far south, but a little bit. And, uh, and that's where like just a sort of a, a dream was implanted about doing stuff in northern Saskatchewan. And and it was just like, there's so many different opportunities and aspects to it. So I don't want to go too far into, too, too much into it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it may not mean actually owning a fishing camp, but uh, who knows, maybe. We'll talk about that in a couple of years, see what happens. There's like, we, I think that there could be a huge amount of connections with our First Nation community up there. And that there's, and there's like, I'm on a board that, uh, we're the, of Impact Canada, and there is people that are going every two weeks up to 
Sucker River, which is just south of this area as well. And there's, a, there's this camp that we were looking at, Stony um, Rapids. People from Stony Rapids would come and work there every year. And that's one place that they had to be dry. There's no alcohol allowed. So they had so many family memories made in those summers. So I'm just like, maybe there's some things that could still happen, but we'll see. But I was like really intrigued by this. Intrigued enough to like charter a plane to, to, see, uh, to see the place. Um, but then it, what it did is just opened up some opportunities. And then all of a sudden in like January, I get a phone call from somebody that I went to uh, Bible school with 25 years ago, who has been leading canoeing trips for the last 20 years to northern Saskatchewan. Uh, did you know that people come to northern Saskatchewan from Alberta to go on the canoe trips? Like, there's no real good canoe trips in Alberta, so they come to Saskatchewan. Um, like, we have something special up here that people fly from Europe to go and canoe on our, in our northern Saskatchewan areas, especially the Churchill River system, and then farther from there. Rick Tredegar is a friend of mine from Rostron that runs the uh, Mississippi, the Churchill River tours, or Churchill River Outfitters. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, he's, he's just giving me tons of ideas, too. Uh, and he actually, his, his whole business started by giving uh, tours to, uh, or canoe trips to Christians in uh, churches. And that's how he started and how he got his footprint in there back in the 1980s. And actually, the canoes at the Youth Farm Bible Camp were used for the first year at, with, for Rick, Rick's uh, stuff there. So Ange phones me up and says, yeah, I'm thinking of uh, quitting my job at the University of Calgary where I've led the outdoor recreation program for the last 20 years. And I'm like, okay, sure, we'll, we'll have you come here. <laughs> and because of that, sort of the two dreams are colliding a little bit. Uh, and that's very interesting to see what will happen with that. So now we have AHA Adventures. Um, and Gustavo's put this website together and we're offering some trips, some high-end trips to help pay for the whole program, and then some deep adventure trips for, for youth to go on. And we think that there's some really amazing things that can happen on canoe trips. And we'd like to see like, some, and this is something that's gonna take a while to blossom, and it's gonna take a while to grow. But we, I think it's a dream, just one of the, the many dreams where two dreams come together and collide, and uh, something can happen because of it. And I believe that we need to be that we have God-given dreams in us. Each one of us has God-given dreams. And this is what Mark Batterson says. Sadly, the pursuit of big dreams is a dying art in today's world. As I look around, there are fewer and fewer people willing to pray bold prayers and reach for God-sized goals. Like some, some dreams can be like, seem impossible. And some of those impossible dreams are even things like a reconciled relationship with a spouse or with a child or a church plant or a new ministry or a new business or, or something new that God wants you to start. And maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a trip. But I mean, the thing with God-sized dreams is those are the desires in us that simply cannot be ignored. And when we pay attention to them and spend time pursuing them, we feel exhilarated and it actually helps us grow in our relationship to God. We feel joy and purpose as though we're doing exactly what God created us to do. And that's why I think I do feel that dreams are, are a way for miracles to happen. 
Some of uh, William and Catherine Booth's dreams created a bunch of miracles in the lives of a ton of addicts. A lot of people that needed to come to Jesus. Same with David Tays. But it's not always exactly what you think, right? Like, what do you, let's go back to Palm Sunday. That the apostles had a different dream there than Jesus had, right? The apostles were thinking, this is it. Our king has come. We're coming in on the, on the donkey, and we're like right along there, and everybody's praising him. It's like this, we're about to see some things happen. And it was just like, all in their minds, like Peter and John, as they're running to that empty tomb, now there's some excitement there, but before on Good Friday, like they are devastated, right? Like their, their dream was just taken away. And part of that comes because we often don't see the end, we don't know the end goal of where our dreams will take us. We just need to have some, a step of obedience. And like if, if I would tell you in the last 20 years, if I would told you 20 years ago what would all happen at the Youth Farm Bible Camp, I would have been clueless. I would have never got any of it right. But there are some overlying themes that may have been possible. But we just need to start risking and start uh, stepping in faith or continue doing that. For many, it's continue doing that. It's more of an encouragement to stay with it Stay pursuing your dreams and make sure that they're God-sized dreams and not your-sized dreams. Make sure it's God that is giving you the dream. And uh, one thing that, when there's resistance to it, from earthly, when there's earthly resistance, you know that it's a God-sized dream. Many of us today, we sometimes can, we pray for instant miracles to happen, Right? And uh, pre-pack his dreams, like, hey, I want that car spot right close to, the, to, the, to the, uh, the entrance of the mall, or something like that. Nothing wrong with talking about, to God about like, making sure you get the go- close parking spot, but it, don't, don't, make, don't make that think, don't think of that as like, your miracle as much as other things in your life. We live in a society that deci- deceives us into thinking our dreams are like 90-second race. Just put a little bit in, of work, a little dash of faith, a pinch of prayers, and ta-da, it's ready, right? We want instant satisfaction. That's what we want. Uh, dreams take a lifetime to pursue. Um, if you go and talk to David Tays, like if, when, when he was alive, um, and you asked him what he learned in the, 19, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, so that he could be at that position to lead 22,000 people out of Russia into Canada and many thousands more into other places in South America, like he would have been like, yeah, there's so many things, steps of faith, so many dreams that, that I pursued that got me to that point where I, where I could do this, where God could shepherd me into what I could do. And that's, that's where we need to be. It's, it's let's think life, lifetime, not just instant gratification with miracles. God waits for us to listen. He waits for us to obey. He will even take something that, where we've disobeyed and he will even make some, some good stuff happen out of it. And uh, just ask any of the, the people in the, in the Bible, Abraham disobeyed a few times. Jacob, right? 
Like Jacob probably screwed up a fair bit. He took 40 years of his life, maybe not 40 years, 14 years of his life because he, because he made a lie. When, when God sees that we're finally in a place where we're ready to chase that dream that he's always planned for us to achieve, that's when he'll give us the permission to go ahead with it. So I think that's, uh, that's something that where it's, there's a need to be obedient, need, a need to be obedient for the people of God and we'll see even more miracles. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. And we know that you want to live in us. And we know that you have, you have dreams and desires that you've implanted in us even from birth, even before we were born. And sometimes we don't even know exactly what those are yet. Help us to grow close to you and be obedient to you so that we can see some of these things happen. And we know in this room, there's, there's a ton of, of dreams that have been lived out. And there's dreams that have been flourishing. And there's dreams that are, like, uh, that are just ready to start. And, and we know that there's, it doesn't matter what age we are. We can, ha- we can see the past where there's miracles that you've done in our lives. And we know that you're still wanting to be there for our future. Help us to be obedient to you and help us to take those leap of faith, that God-sized dream, whatever we want to call it, which is going to take a bit more energy than what we've expected. Give us that energy so we know it's from you and not from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website hagemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.